Welcome back to another episode of Epic Earth. Epic Earth is a podcast for those curious about the STEM fields and the awesome, quirky, and fun experiences and research that is taking place right now. This is episode number 16, The Human Side of Science. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride as we take a journey around this epic Earth. How are elements distributed in a planetary body? What are our hopes? What are our dreams? What do we want to accomplish? And how do we accomplish it? We can have all the science in the world, but if it's not translated, how is that helpful? Welcome to another episode of Epic Earth. I'm Ashley Bosa, and with me, as always, I have my awesome co-host, Brian Rosenblatt. Hey, super happy to be here. (laughs) We're happy to always have you, Brian. (laughs) Um, And we're super excited today because uh, for the first time on the Epic Earth podcast, we are actually interviewing three people all together. And we're so excited because uh, they have this amazing, amazing project that they're going to be telling us about. And um, yeah, so we're going to just dive in. I'm going to introduce all of them. So our first uh, guest is Eric Jankowski. Um, He's an associate professor in the Micron School of Material Science and Engineering. And he uses computing to understand organic materials for solar power and aerospace applications. So welcome, Eric. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Our second guest is Krishna Pakala. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Mechanical and Biomechanical Engineering. And he uses engineering education research as an engine to identify evidence-based approaches that best enhance student experiences, uh, which is super cool. So welcome, Krishna. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And lastly, we have Anne Hamby, who is a assistant professor of marketing in the College of Business and Economics. Um, And she studies the ways that consumers understand and are influenced by narratives. So welcome, Anne. Thanks. Um, And so it's so great to have all of you. We have sort of a diverse background of research and uh, applications to that research with us today. So we're super excited about that. But before we dive in really into the research and the project that we're going to be talking to you about, um, we first like to get to know our guests a little bit more. So um, we want you to tell us a little bit more about who you are, what What makes you you, and how did you get to sort of the current position that you're in? So um, I don't know, maybe, Anne, do you want to start us off? Sure. Um, I... The first thing that comes to my mind when I think of kind of key plot points in my life in terms of how I got to where I am and why I'm interested in what I'm interested in comes out of a moment of existential crisis where I was in a graduate program and I quit it because I was not feeling confident that it was what I wanted to do. I just wasn't excited about the path I was following. And so I said, I need to find something else and just was happily plugged into an amazing opportunity that fell into my lap, which was in South Africa. I, my advisor at the time needed a project manager to go 
and um, help direct this Kellogg funded project on positive youth development. And it just so happened to be a narrative based intervention where they took the standard curriculum, health education curriculum, and kind of gave a narrative spin to it. And I saw, you know, the control condition of the students that were getting the regular didactic lecture based, you know, this is this is what you should do. And then when there was the narrative component where students were acting or watching acting and just how engaged they became. And it was like magic and just getting to see those side by side, such a contrast really sparked my interest in the role of narrative and its ability to engage and influence us. And so then happily, I go like, okay, there's this thing I want to study and return to graduate school. And that's how I ended up you know, some other de deviations along the way where I am, but that was a critical turning point in my life. That's great. Um, yeah. And I think uh, we've talked about it on our podcast before, but yeah, sometimes, you know, life is just not linear. Like you, you fall into things and you decide that you just don't really like them or that it's not really working out the way that you wanted it to. And so um, that's really inspirational that you could go out and find something that you were really passionate about. And sort of fell into your lap a little bit. It found me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's great. Thank you so much for that. Um, let's see, Krishna, how about you? Yeah, so both my profession and also, you know, the path to my current position, both uh, are not by design. Uh, they have been something that had to do with the experiences I've had. You know, I came to the U.S. to get a master's degree that was the plan and then get into industry and make lots of money, right? <laughs> uh, that was the plan. And then, uh, you know, my advisor uh, one day changed my life where he said, you know, I think you should uh, teach this class by yourself in the summer. I suddenly have to go to France. Um, I know you have never taught a class by yourself, but I think you can do it. You have been my right-hand man and students always spoke highly of you uh, about how you help them as a teaching assistant. So I was like, okay, I will do it. And uh, he wrote a nice email to our department chair at that time because it was very uncommon for a master's student in their first year to teach a class by themselves. So he had to kind of make an argument why that was okay. And it was also the first time I saw like $8,000 uh, in two months time, which was huge, <laughs> you know, uh, when I was I think uh, considering uh, that salary for a grad student at that time was 12,000 in a year. So, so it was huge. And then that experience really changed me. I taught a 60 student class and, uh, you know, I really un understood the process it takes to, you know, prepare for the class and how do you still engage students in the class? And then I thought, okay, this could be a career that I should explore. And it so happened that based on the immigration status that I have and the timing that I needed to get jobs in, I applied for both industry and the academic world. For industry, most of the people said you are too overqualified for these jobs. For academic world, they post something, but they actually want somebody else, you know, and it, it is very tough as you as you as you know. And I had you know, teaching experience, but I was not really looking into doing any research or anything else. So it was a very tough uh, sell, you know, obviously, but I needed a job. And I, if I didn't get it within a week, I had to leave the country. And then fortunately, I had a call from Boise State. And I did, I thought I did the interview well. 
And then it was actually my master's advisor again, who insisted that he speak to the search committee. At that time he was in Poland. So he made sure they called him and I'm thinking he spoke highly of me at that time and that actually sealed the deal. You know, he's no longer with us. He died uh, right during when the pandemic started. Um, so he has been a biggest influencer in my life. Um, and since then I didn't look back, you know, I realized that, you know, maybe this is what my left life is meant to be. Even my grandmother who also died recently, uh, always used to say I would be a teacher in the future because I was born on teacher's day, which is celebrated on September 5th in India. Anyway, and then slowly I recognized that, uh, you know, this is my calling, uh, especially when the students, uh, continue to be, you know, successful, not only in what they are doing, but just maintain a good relationship with me still, even after they graduate. Um, and then, you know, along the lines, um, I realized I was doing some of the work that a tenure track member may be doing. Uh, and I explored some opportunities and I was able to convince the college to create first of its own unique position where engineering education would be focus of my work. And that's how I ended up here. Wow. That's, that's great. <laughs> that's so awesome. You are like, just, that's amazing. Um, what a story. And um, yeah, I think just having those advisors that are really supportive and really are rallying for their, their students and, and the, you know, the grad students, especially who work with them um, are just great. It's important to have have those people really behind you. Um, I had a similar undergraduate advisor who was very much like that for me, who um, was always there. And basically I think he sealed my deal getting into grad graduate school because he was like determined that, you know, I had a future <laughs> in volcanology. And he was like, yep, yep. I'm gonna make sure that you get into the right grad school. So yeah, so brilliant. Well, we're so, lucky and fortunate to have you here at Boise State and um, really excited to learn about some of the research and, and some of the projects that you're working on. Um, great. Okay. And lastly, we have Eric. So Eric, what makes you, you? I'm here out of spite. I <laughs> um, uh, had a dad, still have a dad who loves this 4,000 year old board game called Go. And he tried to teach it to me when I was little and I hated it. It sucked. And my summer after my senior year of high school, I decided I was going to teach myself in secret and stick it to the old man. And when I started researching this game and reading about it, I fell in love with it. And that confused me because I hated this thing. And it was the first time where I was able to see quite clearly that difference in pedagogy matters, that like the, a, a book can be a teacher and it can give you an accessible introduction that makes you love something instead of hate it. This happened again with computing. I uh, went into chemical engineering to avoid computer science and um, later found an accessible introduction. And now I do it as my job. I program computers to study chemicals. And um, uh, um, in the same way that like folks say that you can't use storytelling in a thermodynamics classroom, um, I show up to prove them wrong. And so, um, I am here out of spite. Nice. <laughs> oh, the irony. 
Uh, I feel like the theme among among us is that we haphazardly sort of just like tripped into our professions right now. So, <laughs> so go on. I think us. it goes to show that there's, uh, you can always reinvent yourself. Um, uh, and, like, I think about this a lot from a graduate training perspective. Like when um, students do their PhD over like the course of like four or five years, they become an expert at something and like in a really short amount of time. And whenever I'm worried that like something's moving too fast and I'm not like keeping up with the literature or something, I remember like, oh yeah. And like, I went from knowing nothing to knowing all of the things about my field in like five years. Like, and now I know how to learn. Like this is, this is, this is a doable thing. I, yeah. I shouldn't be freaked out about this. <laughs> yeah. That's a really good way to approach it. Definitely. I think, uh, especially when, when students think about grad school, um, especially the PhD, I think it can be really daunting, but that's a, that's a really great approach. I love that, that sort of process and thinking. Um, great. So uh, I want to kind of get into the project that we're here to talk about, because I think it's super relevant to a lot of our listeners and to a lot of the students that we have. Um, so uh, you are all part of a bigger project called the Story Collider. Is that correct? Yep. And um, so can you just tell us a little bit about what the Story Collider is and um, sort of how that how it works and, and basically who gets involved with it? Or maybe I'll start and then hand off to Krishna and Ann. Um, the Story Collider is a national storytelling nonprofit that believes um, that everybody has a science story to share. Um, and Story Collider's mission is to share the human side of science, um, uh, the what it is to actually do the research that we do and learn things. And um, I've been involved with the Story Collider as a storyteller and as a board member, and I'm serving as the board president. Um, but um, uh, that's only because like, I like this thing that allows um, engineers and scientists to like express a little bit of their humanity while also connecting other people to the to the process of science and um uh it has started these collaborations like these these community building efforts to like learn more about my peers like krishna and ann who have grabbed onto parts of this project and help it grow into something that was much bigger and more impactful than um i ever imagined it could be on campus and i will let them talk a little bit about that great i could go next so I initially started as a sidekick to Eric. <laughs> um, you know, I love his energy. And uh, when he told me that he, he was doing this uh, initiative, I got really excited about it because I think for me, um, as somebody who is not from here, English is not a first language. Sometimes, you know, that storytelling uh, kind of creates the narrative. And sometimes that's what people you know, get connected to rather than my CV or anything else, right? Um, and also so much, so many times it helped me humanize everything I was trying to share, right? Um, and I, you know, uh, worked with Eric to do the same uh, experience for my students in the class. And, you know, that, that process of working with the students, with the story collider, and also I also shared a story on stage as well, really, 
um, you know, the idea was cemented, and then I said, okay, this is this is where we should go in 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 the future in terms of you know expanding this to the entire college and eventually to the entire university. So that's how it started, and then I met uh, Anne in a in a cohort uh, setting where. You know, I just shared this is what we are exploring. Um, you know, this is something we want to get going immediately. You know, and Eric, with all his other day job, you know, this is a small part of it, even though he's passionate to do it. So he needs somebody else as well to help him, right? So it so happened that we had a little bit of time, but we were very passionate about the idea. So, and Anne suddenly was the right ingredient <laughs> uh, and the magical ingredient that we needed who was as excited maybe even more to help us out and that's how the uh, project that we started working on as a proposal started maybe Anne can talk about the proposal a little bit and and where we are with it so yeah just jumping off of what Krishna said it was to my delight and surprise through this program found some someone some people eric and krishna who were using storytelling in a way that i hadn't actually really thought about it so my interest in storytelling and persuasion had really focused on the receiver side or the audience side and how people understand process are influenced by stories but what i thought and that's obviously part of this whole initiative because people are hearing stories, right? There are audiences for the, um, the, the stories that are being told in a story collider context. But what I thought was really interesting is how stories can be used to shape our own understanding of ourselves. So by the act of telling a story, I am self-authoring and then view myself a little bit differently after I have told that story in the process of working on the story. And I read a little bit about that in the psychology literature, the whole idea that identity is really not a static snapshot. It's a dynamic story that we're constantly telling over time. And this was that idea being applied uh, with so many other research questions that could be tacked on. And so, you know, when I, I learned what Eric and Krishna had been doing, I was like, what? This is cool. <laughs> Can I apply too? <laughs> so it was really, I, I'm so grateful that they let me onto the team because they had already been collecting data and had this idea that was kind of, you know, really, I, I don't want to say, I mean, it was fully formed. They were very open to me coming in and, and evolving it, but it was really like the idea was there. It was just, let's pull the pieces together, write this proposal up and get it out. And um, to me, it seems like a no brainer, but oftentimes there, there are many things in my life that have seemed like no brainers, but other people don't necessarily see them as no brainers. Whereas this, anytime I talk about it with colleagues in a professional setting, with lay people, you know, everyone goes, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so to me, when there's that immediate, like, okay, I understand how this is a tool that can be used. Uh, it, you know, some things are more esoteric and, and provide value in ways that people don't necessarily understand, but there, there's just an intuitive understanding of how story can be used to shape one's self-view. And um, to, to be a little bit more concrete about how this is being used in the context of the proposal, uh, 
obviously engineering is a uh, difficult <laughs> line of study to pursue. And so one of the issues is that people will start along, students will start along this trajectory and a little bit of, you know, way into it, a year or two, start to question, do I belong here? This is hard for me. It doesn't seem like it's hard for everyone else. Um, and consequently, they'll drop out. So attrition is a real issue, particularly amongst historically underrepresented minorities, females, um, a lot of the populations that where retention is really an issue. And so we thought, okay, we've got this problem. How can storytelling be used to help retain students in this time where it's, you know, it's hard for everyone, right? So it's like, in a way, they're, they're miscalibrated because they see themselves as, as experiencing a challenge, but it's something that everyone is experiencing. And so what we're hoping to do uh, over the next three years in this project is first teach students via Story Collider and their expertise how to tell stories. So there is a science to storytelling. So educate them about that and then walk through a series of assignments where they will identify a story of either about a challenge that they've experienced in um, their engineering education, something like that, and workshop it so that it is can be performed. And then they will eventually tell that story. And we hope to measure uh, before they tell the story and after they tell the story and look at changes in their sense of professional identity, um, their self-view as an engineer, uh, persistence, persistence intentions. So I, I feel like I've had the talking stick for a while. So um, I don't know if Eric and Krishna want to jump in and fill in. <laughs> Maybe I'll um, jump back in time a little bit to like, give a little bit of a sense of like what all this is like we said like the words story collider but where did this come from and wh what has happened on campus um so um i uh was handed thermodynamics to teach as a new faculty member and was wow. asked to measure um uh abet outcome three which is an ability to communicate effectively with a wide range of audiences um and um so i got this idea to do something around um, uh, story writing because I had read research from someone named Jeff Shinsky who had used story collider stories in his intro bio class and showed that after listening to these stories, um, students had counter stereotypical descriptions of scientists. So like before um, listening to story collider stories, it'd be like uh, lab coat, glasses, old white bald. And then um, after listening to story colliders, it was like, everybody, I can be a scientist, uh, right? And I wondered if writing stories about science, about thermodynamics in particular, personal stories about thermodynamics might be a way for students to have metacognition about their class and how they fit into the major and whether this might be correlated with um, feelings of confidence about the class or belonging in the major. So in 2017, we got started um, with an IRB uh, approved study to measure our students' attitudes before and after writing these stories about science. And then we, we started having story collider shows and workshops on campus. We brought in Krishna. Krishna piloted this out in his classrooms. Then we're like, okay, like this is seems like a, a, a maybe a big thing. Um, and um, Krishna and I started um, drafts of applying for federal funding to scale this up. And it wasn't until Anne came in and kind of like, pulled all this together in a real interdisciplinary way. So like, right, like I have some of like the Story Collider service work on my uh, CV. 
Krishna is just such an outstanding educator. He, you know, he's one of the goats, like uh, um, the uh, 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 golden apple winner um, this semester. Um, that is an award from the students. It's the most meaningful teaching accolade you can yeah, get. And congrats, by the way. Yes, heck yeah. <laughs> Thank you. And then um, Anne bringing in the science around um, narrative and how that understands, uh, how that impacts identity really closed the loop in a way where we had experience, um, ability, and um, theory um, uh, in a way that I think made a pitch to the National Science Foundation that um, was bound to be successful. And we've also got another grant uh, proposal in doing this at the graduate level too so hopefully we have four more years of funding for doing that as well yeah and if i may i want to add one more thing uh, we also have another uh, colleague of ours on the, on this project that was funded uh, dr sarah hagana from college of education who brings in her educational uh, research side of it you know and her main focus is around stem graduate student identity so she brings a wealth of experience you know looking through that lens so that made us uh, team even more stronger um, and like eric mentioned we also have uh, just recently submitted a graduate level proposal where we have brought in an engineering education researcher and looking at doing this more broadly for STEM and PhD and master's programs, especially we have a couple of transdisciplinary programs, so taking leverage of that and then doing it at two different universities. So we are looking to, you know, spread the roots even more. I absolutely love this. This is so fantastic. And I feel like, um, just our department of the geosciences, but also me as a, a, an outreach coordinator can learn so much from your group. And so I hope that uh, I can collaborate a lot with, with all three of you in the future, because one of the things that we're trying to do, and particularly one of the reasons why we started this podcast is because, you know, the geosciences is one of the least diverse uh, fields in the STEM fields. Um, you know, I think uh, we're, we're gaining some, you know, some diversity within it, but it still really lags behind a lot of the other STEM fields. And, um, and so one of the things that we're trying to do is make, you know, science in general, but also the geosciences more accessible um, to a broader community. So really, it's all about sharing people's stories and their backgrounds on where they came from. You don't have to come from a privileged white family to be in the geosciences, you know, you don't just have to love rocks. There's a whole host of fields that you can, you can be in within the geosciences. Um, but we love hearing stories from the other STEM fields as well, because uh, I think this whole idea behind retaining students in these fields, because there is this big thing about imposter syndrome, right? Like you get into it, we all experience it. We're sitting here and, and several times I've sat there and thought, well, like, what am I doing here? Like, I know nothing and everyone else around me is so much smarter. Um, but then it's like, when I start talking to, you know, the other grad students and some of the faculty, you start to realize like, this is a very common feeling around a lot of scientists and, and um, it's good to explore that and to, to be able to say like, no, I am a scientist and, and I do research. And, and one of the things that I really love, and maybe you guys, um, you know, I don't know how often you work with maybe younger students, I know you're at like a, a undergraduate and graduate level, 
Um, but for my outreach component, I love going to younger students and, and asking them, you know, what do you think a scientist is? And sort of changing their perspective on that lab coat and glasses idea, you know, like a lot of people just think all we do is like sit in a lab or or look at rocks. And um, it's fun to sort of change the perspective on, on thinking like, no, we're all scientists. If you've ever been curious about anything, you're a scientist. So great. I'm so excited. This is so awesome. Also, fun fact, uh, that the Story Collider has been doing shows at um, the American Geophysical Union um, uh, annual meetings for a few years now. So for the folks that go to AGU, like there's a Story Collider show um, uh, at the meeting every year that I've never been to, um, but I know that it happens. That's awesome. We'll have to check that out next time. And Krishna, did you have something else to add to that? Yeah, I, I want to pick on what you were saying earlier about, you know, reaching populations earlier than undergraduate level. In fact, one of the broader impacts that we hope to achieve with our project is to have a wide variety of audience get exposed to our storytelling intervention, or in this case, the performance. Uh, so we plan to have, you know, wide variety of ages, uh, different people from different sects of the society. And then also we are uh, partnering with the STEM Action Center uh, so that our stories can be hosted on their website and then look at some other events, maybe on the Capitol when they have their showcases to maybe have some of these students share their stories. So we definitely wanna use this as an engine to get more students excited about what it takes. You know, For example, when we had a recent show, they were stories that were shared, even their advisors didn't know that those experiences have happened for those students, right? Uh, one of the things that engineering lacks uh, desperately is reflection. Uh, we are so good at teaching all the concepts, but I, I just feel like we don't pause for a minute and say, what does this all mean in the big picture, right? Um, so this is probably the first time, it, it's probably like a shock for some of the students to suddenly say, hey, what are we gonna like tell stories? But it's a good kind of shock. Um, and even for the people who attended the show, you know, they wrote me emails from my class saying, I'm so glad you asked us to come because initially we didn't know what this was, but the experience really was very empowering to see and hear all these people had far more struggles than what I'm experiencing now, and then still keep on going with whatever their passions is, is incredible. That is incredible. This makes me so excited. Like I almost wanna do something for the geoscience department in this realm. Um, so <laughs> I'm gonna be talking with you guys a lot and trying to, to get more of our students involved. Cause I think um, science communication is such a big thing now, isn't it? I mean, um, I know particularly that, um, you know for the science fields, you know they wanna know that you can communicate um, science effectively, but also that you can communicate it in a way which makes it accessible to, to a broader audience and to maybe people who are less familiar with the science that you research. So, um, so I'm really excited about this initiative and it's so cool. Um, so what is the best or most fun thing about what you do? Um, either as this project or even as like a, a professor or um, just in life? <laughs> you know, for me, uh, the energy comes from my students. So I, you know, I know there are things that we get judged against and all that, but I, I'm like, 
I'm going to first focus on students and I will filter what the what the world needs in terms of how to say whether I'm doing my job separately. So I think just that working with the students and helping them with, uh, you know, several opportunities. Like I do some random stuff. Like I nominate students for commencement speakers. You know, I do help out with, I reach out to all the people who are nominated for, for example, top 10 scholars. And I spend a lot of time working with each applicant, betting their putting their best packet together, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then on top of that, we we all do write letters of recommendation and things like that. I think my biggest thing that really is what I spend a lot of time is, you know, when my advisor gave me this opportunity, which was not even something that I ever dreamed of, is I want to provide such opportunities for the others. Like when we had a student, Ulysses, who never thought engineering education was something he would explore in the future as, you know, as a grad student ever, just won an NSF graduate research fellowship, you know, which is really prestigious, you know, it's tough to get. But then the fact that he had that, he took a chance on us and now he's going to get a PhD in Arizona State University. You know, that is where my my <laughs> i spend most of my time yeah that must be so rewarding and um such a fulfillment especially for this for the student you know maybe coming in a lot le- a little less uh, or at least a little hesitant about you know what future they have but that's great i mean you're such an inspiration krishna i'm <laughs> I mean, we're so fortunate to have you on this podcast um ann or eric i go for it ann. Guess- Okay, I have an answer and it is also aligned with sort of how I know that this is the right job for me. It is so fun to ask questions and be able to explore them, right? Like that is in part my job where I get to be curious for a living and it's just endlessly entertaining, right? Because there's always questions to ask. And, and it's always fascinating to look back and see what other people have done on the topic. And either like from a methods perspective, learn like how people have approached things, learn about theories, but then also go like, okay, there are questions that haven't been asked and that I can ask them too. And then uh, aligned with the student side of things, teaching, like making students realize that they can also ask these questions, right? It's not just kind of like, as Eric was alluding before science, it's not just the realm of people in lab coats. Um, we all have the ability and, and increasingly the tools are, are accessible to explore the questions that are important to us. So um, yeah, there's no such thing as a boring day. And anyone I meet in academia, I think if, you know, if you are not happy with your job, this is going to sound very judgy, but it's your own fault because it is your job to explore your interests. So uh, that's, I'm so grateful for that part of my life and job. I think the best part for me is causing good trouble. Um, I like the right. Like I, I got into this because of spite, and um, I love that um, moment of learning when we realize the things that we knew before were wrong. Like that's that's what it is to learn is to like figure out what we were wrong and correct it. <clears throat> and um, it, it's like sh- in in thermodynamics showing that like we can use entropy to make systems get more ordered. That's something that's like, we were wrong about entropy being disorder and um, using um, storytelling in an engineering classroom is another place where we can show people that they were wrong about their um, expectations for what 
comprises the right pedagogy. And um, uh, I think that there's a real important component to systemic change that requires pushing against the rules and causing trouble and um, figuring out where the systems are unjust and fixing those um, inequities. And so um, I think that um, one of the things that I like best about my job is causing good trouble. <laughs> we always like the troublemakers. They're <laughs> do we? Do we? <laughs> I don't know. I do. They're kind of fun. <laughs> They're kind of, you learn a lot from them. I feel like <laughs> I also like structure. So, you know, maybe, maybe I'm on both ends of the fence there. <laughs> um, so I'm going to finish up Well, not completely finish up, but um, one of the questions I wanted to ask you um, all is what is the best advice you can offer to someone in STEM fields um, you know, engineering or, or otherwise about science communication? Um, there is research that shows that, um, uh, audiences are more, um, uh, open to receiving a message when the messenger is trusted and, um, uh, ignoring this component of trust in science communication is the number one mistake that um, engineers make. So we're like, we're gonna, we're gonna operate from a deficit perspective. We're gonna fill in the facts. Once you have all the facts, you're gonna make the logical conclusion. And that's not how people make decisions. Um, and um, oftentimes we come across as being elite or like snooty and people are like, I don't trust this messenger. They're trying to trick me. They don't have my best interests in mind. And so understanding and gaining the trust of your audience authentically through understanding what they what their needs are and um, uh, and, and um, answering those questions is um, my number one um, piece of advice for science communication. Can I piggyback off of that? Um, I'm going to speak to science communication as well as communication more generally, given that I suppose I operate more in the social sciences, so less STEM, but still there's, you know, professional communication that's relevant. And often, and this happened just the other day, I was speaking with a student who wanted to apply for a position and I was looking at the cover letter and it was so sterile and boring. And I said, add a little bit of narrative. What? No, that'll discredit me immediately. No one will hire me because they will think I'm not serious. And I think that that is a misconception. Narrative is inherently interesting. No, you can't go, you know, complete um, uh, uh, storytelling, right? In the sense that you you have to you have to have some factual information, and it can't be um, what like literary fiction. I guess that's what the term I'm looking for. But a little bit of information about why you're motivated or why you're interested in a position, right? Like that is story and it is so much more memorable and concrete and generates more images and is more likely to stand out than dry facts. Mm. So that's my piece of information. Yeah, that's very valid. I think that, um, you know, human experience really does enhance some of that, that background, you know, it's the thing that motivates us and, and drives us, like you said, um, especially, you know, for someone who's like non-traditional and came back to school to restart over, basically, um, I find that having that human experience is really what drove me into the field that I'm so passionate and I love and really got me far in, in, this, in this field so far. 
Um, Krishna, how about you? What, what advice would you give? Yeah, so from my own personal experience, you know, writing and speaking publicly is, is hard, right? Uh, I had the biggest stage fear growing, growing up, uh, you know, where I could not speak in front of people. Now I can. Uh, and writing is still hard for me uh, because English was not my first language, right? So I would say to students, you know, it is okay. You know, that is something that you will try to evolve and develop over a period of time. And especially when they're presenting their science, you know, they have to shift from thinking about it is about them and about their research to kind of really have the audience uh, as the center of their, their work, basically helping them. Their mission should be to spark, you know, good thinking and the, to the point where the audience should be able to connect with what they are talking about, relate to it and, you know, a converse with them, right? Um, and also when it talked about public speaking and especially with technical uh, jargons and stuff, I always emphasize it has to start in other settings, not your traditional talks and stuff. For example, in my classes, I emphasize that they should be able to tell a story around what we talked about in the last class in two minutes. Like they, they just have to connect everything without looking at a formula or without looking at a thing. Slowly it builds confidence in them sharing that. And then without them knowing they're actually breaking the barrier of public speaking, because now they're testing it out with their friends, right? And slowly that will come into when they get into undergraduate research experiences and even when they get into graduate school. So I would say, take take the risk and especially work on your, uh, I would say strongest weaknesses that you think are your weaknesses, focus on those and then your strengths will always uh, be getting better. That's so great. Yeah, you guys all have such great advice and make such valid points. And um, I think it really connects with a lot of our listeners and a lot of the students um, at BSU, especially in the science field. So I'm really excited to, uh, you know, promote this podcast and, and get your names out there. And hopefully you'll see a lot more of geoscience students collaborating with you guys and coming to your workshops because um, I think you guys are great and we could learn a lot from, from this project. Um, I'm just going to finish up with um, some serious questions, um, and I'm going to ask each of you one serious question. Serious question. Um, so I'm going to start with Anne. So Anne, how would you sell me eggnog in Florida in the summer? I would promote the obvious magical benefits in terms of hair and nail growth that eggnog is known to supply and uh, point to the study in the journal of wishful findings. Um, and cause we all know people in Florida really care about hair and nail growth. So I, that's the key attribute that I'd emphasize. Nice. That's great. I love how you leaned on some science there too. <laughs> uh, let's see, Krishna. You're next. Um, you just got this really prestigious award for your teaching because you're awesome. Um, so if you could throw a parade of any caliber through your office, what sort of parade would you throw and why? <laughs> Tough questions. Parade. Um, 
I would maybe have a parade of all awesome graduate teaching assistants and all the um, all the teachers who ever who I ever heard talk more about students in department meetings. I'll have all of them walk with me and show that uh, we can be a T1 institution, <laughs> which is teaching one institution in addition to an R1 institution. That's awesome. <laughs> I'll bring the cake and the balloons. <laughs> um, okay, and Eric, here's your question, really serious. Um, if I heat my solid state hard drive until it becomes a gaseous state hard drive, would that enable cloud computing? Oh, I like that pun. Um, <laughs> but uh, when you evaporate your hard drive, uh, it no longer has a state where you can encode information um, into it. So um, know that. <laughs> in fact, it would ruin your ability to do cloud computing. Great answer. Absolutely. Um, I'm sure we've all had experiences with our hard drives just going to the ether. <laughs> I know I have. Luckily, that's why we back it up in several places. But um, you guys, thank you so much. This has been such a fantastic interview. All three of you are fantastic people. We're so fortunate to have you here at Boise State doing these amazing things for, for the university. Um, and we hope that uh, you know, we can be more involved with your group. And uh, thank you. We're so excited to hear more about the research and, and the stories that will come out of, of your students. Um, before we go, would any of you like to give a shout out to anyone? I can go. Uh, I don't uh, acknowledge uh, the um, sacrifices my partner, my wife makes. <laughs> there is no way that I'll be able to spend so much time I do with my students. Sometimes ignoring my kids, <laughs> you know, at the expense of, um, I don't know. So I, I really want to give a shout out to my wife, Aparna. Great. I give a shout out to Will Hughes. Um, he is my colleague in um, uh, material science and engineering, and uh, he's been um, really instrumental on campus as a leader in part um, through his work in the assert program um, that he helped start that brought uh, Anne, Krishna and I together. And he's leaving for the University of British Columbia soon. And oh. I just want to say how much I'm going to miss him and how uh, a lot of this work is because of him. Awesome. I'd like to give a shout out to Crystal Russell. She's a professor at Pepperdine University and she has been a mentor to me and she's believed in me and given me opportunities that had I not had, I don't know where I would be today. So sometimes it just takes someone really opening doors for you and telling you, yep, you could do this. And so, yeah, really grateful. That's awesome. Well, Brian and I would like to just give a shout out to all three of you. You've been fantastic. And uh, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Right. We'll see you around. Well, that was an epic conversation. We'd like to thank all of our listeners. Tune in next time for another Epic Earth podcast.